0: Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 4th of June with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up this week is an extended interview with my colleague Toby Webb in conversation with Sir Ian Boyd, Professor in Biology at the University of St Andrews and Chief Scientific Advisor at the UK Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs from 2012 to 2019. They talk about the need for transformation of food supply systems to really grapple with the sector's emissions and why significant deficiencies are necessary. That's to come. First, some sustainable business news. The coalition, including a number of consumer brands and retailers such as Aldi, L'Oreal, Waitrose, Ferrero, Body Shop and Carrefour, have called on the EU to enact effective laws to halt the trade in commodities and products linked to deforestation and forest conversion. In a statement, the coalition highlights concerns that continued destruction and degradation of forests and other natural ecosystems have negative impacts on agricultural production and lead to human rights violations. They call for requirements for increased supply chain transparency and traceability for all companies. A clear legislative framework is necessary that includes due diligence obligations based on objective scientific criteria. They propose that the finance sector should also be required to carry out due diligence investigations into potential impacts before making investments. In addition, the coalition wants new legislation to be enforced in a harmonised way across the EU and include measures that allow cooperation and partnership with producer countries to address underlying root causes of ecosystem degradation. Levels of public engagement with environmental issues, most notably climate change, is clearly on the rise. And a new report from the Economist Intelligence Unit and WWF that looked at attitudes online across countries accounting for 80% of global population confirms this trend. On Twitter, the number of posts related to nature loss and biodiversity increased globally by 65% between 2016 and 2020. Across the same time period, the number of such tweets in the UK alone grew over 200% and by 550% in India. The proportion of Google searches for terms relating to biodiversity and nature loss relative to all searches grew 16% globally in the period. Emerging economies in Asia and Latin America saw the sharpest rise. Indian searches rose 190% and Googling for sustainable products more generally grew 71% since 2016, the research found. Italian tyre maker Pirelli has announced the first FSC-certified range of tyres. They are made from rubber and rayon from plantations that are managed to preserve biological diversity and to the benefit of local people, Pirelli says. The tyres will initially appear on a range of BMW plug-in hybrid electric cars. Swedish distiller Absolute has been developing a new paper-based bottle for its products. In 2020, it had announced a trial of 2,000 prototypes made from 57% recycled paper and 43% recycled plastic. New innovation means that plastic, which had been used to shape the neck of the bottle, has been replaced with bio-based material. And research continues to replace the remaining plastic, forming a barrier between bottle and contents with biomaterial. Absolute Research follows up similar product development by Carlsberg into prototypes of beer bottles made from recycled and bio-based materials and by Diageo's paper-based spirits bottle for its Johnny Walker whisky brand, the world's top seller. The challenges of decarbonising steel supply chains were highlighted at Innovation Forum's recent Future of Climate Action conference. Greenhouse gas emissions from steelmaking account for between seven and nine percent of global emissions from fossil fuels. German carmaker Mercedes-Benz has announced a new commitment to launch so-called green steel in its models by 2025, and an investment in a Swedish green steel startup. Green steel requires significant technological advances because of the nature of how steel is made, typically using coal as a power source. A switch to using hydrogen generated by renewable energy sources is the aim of green steel manufacturers, and there are a number of steel manufacturers with 2025 targets to achieve this. Finally, the trials and tribulations of big oil with its shareholders continued recently, with both ExxonMobil and Chevron facing rebellions during voting on resolutions at shareholder meetings. Hedge fund climate activist group Engine Number no. One successfully forced Exxon to replace two board members with its nominated candidates, who are expected to insist on more climate friendly strategy. And Chevron shareholders voted 61% in favour of a resolution from campaign group Follow This that will require the company to cut carbon emissions. This follows similar interventions from shareholders at Shell and BP. BlackRock is among the big Exxon shareholders thought to have backed the engine number one proposal down to frustration at the lack of progress on climate change. Coming up in a couple of weeks is Innovation Forum's next Future of Food event from the 15th to the 17th of June, hear from 50 business expert panellists, including from Unilever, PepsiCo, Mars, Bungie, Nestle and Tesco. Something I'm looking forward to in particular is one of the opening sessions on the first day of the event, when I'll be talking with four farmers from across Europe about the rise and rise of regenerative agriculture and whether their experience suggests that it's the answer that so many hope it might be. Passes for the event are still available and hope you can join us. Last week, just before Innovation Forum's Future for Climate Action conference, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb caught up with Professor Sirianne Boyd from the University of St. Andrews. They talked about some of the potential impacts of the COP26 meeting on the structure of food supply systems and the needs for big increases in efficiencies to allow the sector to decarbonize alongside the rest of the global economy.
1: We have a number of events coming up at the moment, one starting today on climate change and business. We have one uh, next month on the future of food and sustainability, which you kindly spoke at last year. And of course, we have COP26 coming up later in the year and your neck of the woods in Scotland later on in November. So there's a lot happening for us and, and for business and environmental issues in 2021. And I just wanted to ask you, really, in what, what your views are on, on what will happen around COP26 and, and how that might be set to change the way we approach environmental issues around our food system. I mean, I think the
2: biggest challenge that I think most of us are aware of with respect to climate change is just making sure we get the accountancy right and that we hold countries institutions, people to account for delivering to the targets that have been set. But that means actually measuring greenhouse gas production and doing it in a verifiable way. One of the biggest problems that we face in the UK, but I think it's the same pretty much for every country, is that when you start doing that accountancy, you find that actually there are technical measures which can reduce greenhouse gas production in quite a large range of different sectors of the economy. But actually, one of the ones where it's hardest to find those reductions is in food production. There are relatively few technical interventions that make a massive difference. And what that is going to mean in the long run is that as we decarbonize economies, the proportion of carbon that is coming from our food production is going to increase. It's already increasing, even under current circumstances, but it's going to get bigger and bigger as a proportion of carbon in the future. And therein lies the underlying challenge. Many areas of our economy, like construction, for example, but also communications and travel, have actually transformed very significantly over the last hundred years or so and are much, much more resource efficient than food production. And I'm talking really here about agriculture, but it's the whole of the supply chain in a sense. We do need to transform food production in the same sort of way. In my view, it needs to become something like five to ten times more efficient than it is at the moment. And when I say efficiency, that means the amount of food we produce per unit area of land that we use to produce that food. It's a massive challenge. And it's one that is, from my perspective, greatest
1: in the food sector or greater in the food sector than than probably any other sector of the economy. It's very interesting you say that, actually. When you put it in context, yeah, you can see how agriculture and farming and food production is going to get more and more attention as as other sectors decline. It becomes more obvious. And I saw a stat saying, I think that animal agriculture is about 15% of global climate change impacts, if that's right. So clearly it's on the agenda. How do we do this then? I mean, you identified a big challenge there, one of of technology perhaps not making the gains that it has done in other areas, but then the need for greater efficiency. So how do we unlock that efficiency? Is that possible? Well, I think it is actually possible, but it needs some concerted action. It needs to be
2: planned to a very good extent. Um, Obviously, I think the market has to deliver these sorts of things, but I think there's high-level government-based and international planning that needs to go on because we live in a global food system. We don't just live in a a national bubble. Just turning to the sort of five to ten times more efficient, that would bring our food system into line with many other parts of the economy in terms of its resource efficiency. If we were to try and do that, I think that's perfectly practical it will require a number of different types of interventions, one of which the most difficult is in changing the kind of demand there is for food. So, you know, people have talked a lot about moving away from livestock farming to more vegetable matter in our diets and that sort of thing. And that would make a huge, huge difference. The kind of food that we feed to animals, if we were to feed it to ourselves, it would be almost 10 times more efficient than it is at the moment. So there is an efficiency saving. I think there's also a lot to be done in terms of technology, and that's not just technology applied to traditional farming, although I think that still has to be developed, and I think there's a way to go on that. But it's actually mainly a step change in technology in non-traditional forms of food production. And that's everything from algal production for commodities, starch and proteins and things like that, let's say based around you know, desert regions of the world where you've got access to both large amounts of sunlight, large amounts of water and a lot of very inexpensive land to things like vertical farming, what we call vertical farming. I would rather call it controlled system farming, where you control all the inputs to the farming system or the growth system that you have, and you get a highly controlled product out, very little waste from that in terms of nutrient waste, very little use of pesticides, much more environmentally compliant than many of the traditional farming techniques. So I think we've got to do all of those things and when you add up all of those things, I think you can achieve the 5 to 10 times the greater efficiency, but it has to be done at massive scale. Just for further illustration, we already do this, but we do it at quite small scales. We do it in some forms of horticulture where the productivity per unit area is extraordinarily high. Things like tomatoes, for example, but also strawberries and things like that are becoming that Type that are getting to those types of fishings. The question is, can we do it with some of the commodities that we need? And that's where
1: the olive oil production systems come into play, but others will as well in due course. Do you have any concerns about the nutritional impact of some of the technologies you talked about? I mean, vertical or controlled system farming. I never quite know who to believe on the nutritional side of things. You know, some people argue that you just don't get the same nutrition from what they regard as more artificially produced fruits and vegetables. Is there any evidence to support that that you've ever seen? I haven't seen any evidence about artificially produced. I mean, I, there's a question
2: about whether why you define artificial, that fruit and vegetables that are grown in controlled systems are not necessarily more artificial than fruit and vegetables that are grown out in a field somewhere. They've just been fed in very controlled ways. That doesn't mean to say that they have fewer nutrients or anything like that. However, the issue around nutrients and nutrient balance is really important. Uh, You know, I think the more you dig into this, the more we understand that it's not just about calories. It's not just about protein. It is about the micronutrients. And we have to get that balance absolutely right. I think research comes into this. Because I think that we can understand those micronutrient balances in such a way as to make sure that whatever food is produced is wholesome and nutritious. And, you know, one of the problems that we have at the moment is an epidemic, uh, really, of non-communicable disease in the form of uh, obesity, which is really driven by diets which are very strong in carbohydrates, very high in carbohydrates, and less in many of the other nutrients that we need. They're less balanced than they need to be. We know that we can change those diets. People need to change their selectivity as well. But actually, we can do quite a lot to help people make different choices about what they eat. My belief is that we need to tell people what is in the products that they buy and inform them as much as we can about the positives
1: and negatives of those things. And then it's up to people to make their own choices. You mentioned a protein deficit that looms last time we spoke a year or so ago. What did you mean by that? And what do you think some of the solutions are? Are they things like insect protein and so on?
2: You know, I think that we're very, very good at producing carbohydrate. I mean, we can feed the world with carbohydrate very easily. And when I say carbohydrate, I mean, you know, everything from sugar through to starch in the form of wheat grains, rice, soya, and those sorts of things. But there are, you know, many more products becoming available, like soya, which are higher in protein. But in general, throughout the world, we have a protein deficit. We in the UK don't. Tend to have that, although we do have people who have nutritional deficits, you know, we do need to work on that. But generally throughout the world, those who are at the lower end of the income scale have difficulty accessing protein. And that's where I think that uh, research and innovation need to come to their help to help them grow the kind of crops that are going to provide the protein they need. And frankly, to use livestock agriculture, you know, this isn't about being completely negative about livestock agriculture. Livestock agriculture has its role to play. And in some of the developing world economies, livestock do form a very important part of the food supply chain and balanced nutrition as it does in developed countries like the UK, but not to the extent that we have it at the moment. You know, I think it's a matter of understanding what that larger scale strategic picture is about how much nutrition we need to grow of different types and making sure that it's distributed appropriately. But of course, what we're not very good at doing is organising all that. So it's the governance of that process. Is really, the big issue that we have. We have most of the techniques available to be able to make sure that everybody is fed appropriately,
1: but we don't have the governance, unfortunately. It strikes me that there might be some quite easy wins on protein sources. I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day setting up an insect protein business, and he was running me through the numbers, the kind of catastrophic numbers around the impacts of producing protein for fish meal for fish food for aquaculture and for animal feed from soy and particularly from what they call trash fish which is a terrible term really because those fish seem they're very they seem very important from the ocean's point of view yet we call them trash fish and this entrepreneur's view was well let's replace that with insect protein which can be made, I think 250 times more efficiently was one of his estimations. So I suppose there are some quite easy wins there on some basic forms of protein. Yes, there are. You know, you mentioned insects, and I think insect
2: protein has a a very bright future. Absolutely. It would always be more efficient if we formulated insect protein in a way that we ourselves could eat it, rather than that it was translated through some other form of livestock, whether it's a fish or a, a cow or a sheep or whatever it might be whether we'll ever get to that is another matter. That's a matter of human choice to some extent. But it's also a matter of actually food engineering too. The more we can work on that, the better. I think there is always a, a question about where does the food for the insects come from? We have a bit of a tendency to look at things like insect protein through a lens which forgets what the ancillary impact might be of, let's say, a burgeoning insect protein production industry, I can see that insects might be fed everything from sewage, and that's a possibility, although I doubt that would go back into the human supply chain, but could be used for other products, through to vegetable material that just we couldn't use or many other forms of livestock couldn't use. And they would, as you correctly say, they would translate that very efficiently into other usable products. And that's fine. But when we start to get very reliant on these sorts of things, we then start feeding them things like grain that is grown on land that could be used to grow food that could be fed directly to people. And that's kind of what we've done with other livestock. So it's one thing to develop these things and then pass them over to the market to deliver them. But the market has a tendency to go off in directions which in the end produce some negative outcomes. And we've got to be very aware of those negative outcomes and try to manage against them because otherwise we just get ourselves into another difficult position.
1: Yes. The the, the law of unintended consequences looms yep. large, doesn't it? In sustainable it solutions. Ian, what are your views on this huge trend of regenerative agriculture? It dominates every conversation we have. Companies are falling over themselves to commit to regenerative agriculture targets, whether it's a a million acres from General Mills to professing their love of the Rodale Institute's kind of small as beautiful approach. We see regenerative agriculture dominating everywhere. Yes, it has its critics. I know some of them who argue that it's not codified, it's undermining sustainable agriculture standards, which have been around for 30 years. And it's kind of everything to everyone, therefore prone to greenwash. So I wonder what your views were on this kind of emerging trend.
2: Well, regenerative agriculture, there's no doubt that we can do an immense amount to improve the agricultural systems that we have through regenerative techniques. A lot of research is being done on that. It's a good thing. But it's only one part of a big mix. And I've mentioned many of the others already. It's not the solution by any means. The trouble is it rolls off the tongue quite easily. Regenerative agriculture is an easy thing for people to turn to and point to and say, well, actually, we're going to support that because lots of people seem to engage with it. It isn't the golden passport to sustainability. That's for absolute sure because actually regenerative agriculture is very unlikely to produce the volumes of food that we need in the future. We do need highly intensive agriculture. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I've said that we need to be five to 10 times more productive per unit area in the future. And that's not just because food production needs to be as resource efficient as other sectors of the economy. It's because if we keep using up land, eating up land, then that land can't be used for other things. And that's particularly for things like other ecosystem services, like maintenance of biodiversity, but also maintenance of water quality and even air quality, because land actually makes a difference to that as well. And all those services come from land that is, is used not necessarily for food production, of which carbon storage is certainly one as well. So we need land for all sorts of other things. So we need to make agriculture a lot more efficient. I'm afraid regenerative agriculture isn't necessarily taking us in that direction. It's got some positives, but it's also got some real
1: negatives. So how do you respond when you hear... British farmers and their lobbyists talk about how I think the stat I've heard is that 75% of the UK's arable land is really only fit for grazing rather than crops. And you would know better than I. But if it's something around that amount, people say, well, therefore, we need to use animal agriculture on the land. It makes it regenerative. And that sounds great. And of course, that fits in with the Michael Gove's vision of, sort of nature what was it, public payments for public goods and a sort of nature-based approach, which has been pointed out that could devastate food production. What are your views on that whole debate in the British context? I think up till now, the
2: argument has always been that the UK is very rich in what you call marginal land, in other words, land that isn't really very good for agriculture, certainly not for growing crops. And therefore, the best way to get benefit from that is to put livestock on it, particularly ruminant livestock that has a capacity to take rough vegetation and turn it into something that we can then actually eat ourselves. That's a fair argument. But I think we do need to look at that land and ask the question, well, what is the best thing to do with that land? Is the best thing to do to put livestock on it to crop the grass that's grown? Or is the best thing to do to not put livestock on it and allow that to regenerate, to support uh, biodiversity, for example. Some people call that rewilding. Or is it best to plant trees there in order to be able to absorb carbon, to find balance off our carbon budgets uh, better? Or is it best to create a nice landscape where people can go and enjoy it and gain health benefits from it? Or a number of other things. All those functions are perfectly good functions. The question is, in any particular circumstances, what should we be using that land for? And sometimes it will be for livestock agriculture, but many cases where we're currently using land for livestock agriculture, it won't be the most sensible thing to do with that land. We do need to develop much better decision support tools and reward structures for the people who own and manage that land in order to be able to make sure that they make a living out of it. And I'll give you one example of that in that, and just going back to COP26, one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have, you know, over the next few decades is the availability of what's called offsets. That's where people can buy carbon that is being stored somewhere else to offset against the carbon they produce. And airlines do that a lot. Offsets are really going to be quite rare. In other words, they're going to be restricted in their availability in the future because so many people are going to want them. Anybody who has the capacity to store carbon on their land by growing trees or growing peat or other vegetation, uh, which can be verified, potentially could sell that carbon as an offset. I would ask a question of any upland farmer in the UK. In the future, is it better to put livestock onto your land, to graze that carbon off the land and turn it very inefficiently into meat, which you then sell? Or is it better to leave it there and to sell it into a carbon marketplace? Now, those carbon marketplaces don't exist at the moment, but they probably will in the future. So it's trying to get people into thinking about managing their land
1: differently for different yeah, I guess on that basis, the future looks fairly bleak for tenant farmers then, I suppose, doesn't it? I mean, one of the things I, I often emphasise about this is that it
2: doesn't. What it does mean is that people who are currently tenant farmers may need to think differently about the kind of products that they produce from their land in future. Rather than putting grazing sheep on uplands, for example... They may be actually cropping that land for different purposes. It may be for carbon storage. It may be for providing recreational space for people in the adjacent urban area. We need to be able to make sure the reward structures for these people are correct and fair. That's what we're trying to work through at the moment. Public money for public good is part of that
1: story. And how do you see all of this affecting the UK's ability to produce Food. I mean, one of the challenges has been, you know, this is an age old story, isn't it? Food miles. You know, are we better off having green beans from Kenya or something from a hot house in Holland? And then, of course, we have the Brexit debate. Let's say we could make all that work. I suppose that would make the UK much more reliant on food imports unless it does that really serious technology enabled intensification. Is that right?
2: Yeah, the UK has to look after its own problem itself it can't just export the problem elsewhere so you know it would be very easy for us just to say all right we are going to prioritize the use of land for let's say biodiversity and reduce our overall food production and therefore export the problem of food production somewhere else where we have less control over that would be a very bad outcome But the reality is that we produce the vast majority of our food on about 50% of our land. That's the sort of high quality land. The other 50% produces very little at all. So without a lot of change to the system, if we intensify the use of the land that does already produce quite a lot of our food or produce our food through new technology type systems, the, the, the controlled farming systems that I was, or controlled growth systems that I was talking about, over a reasonable period of time, we could make up for that lost production from, let's say, 50% of the land that we currently use to farm on, but actually produce very little from using those new technologies. You know, I think it's a matter of rebalancing how we use our land. That could happen over something like a decadal timescale, to shift away from producing food on land that is presently obviously not very good for producing food to producing something that it's much more valuable for and also at the same time making sure that the land that is good at producing food is properly looked after and that we are increasing the use of technologies that can intensify food production in those and other
1: areas. Many stakeholders in the food debate hear the word intensification. They think chemicals and scary technologies for them and perhaps for some others around GM or gene editing. So when we talk about intensification, does it have to involve increased chemical use or is it more about just being smarter about how we set up the system in the first place, i.e. vertical farming and, and so on? It definitely doesn't involve increased use of chemicals. In fact,
2: it's really the opposite because we want to reduce chemicals through technology there will be things that need to be tested for their acceptability. But you know, I think that the kind of quality of product that you would get out of a controlled growth system is going to be so much better than you get out of a field-based type system. When it comes to things like GM, you know, I think there are different definitions of GM. We've got gene editing, for example, which in a EU context has been classified as GM, but in global context and most other countries, it's not. I think the UK needs to decide what position it's going to take on those things. But whatever happens, genetic technologies, and there's a difference between genetic technologies generally, and GM are going to play a very big part in making sure that we have the kind of varieties of food that are going to grow appropriately in our climate and our soils and the latitudes that we're at in order to be able to be highly productive. That's just something that we've done over many thousands of years and we will continue to produce you know, better and better crops in due course. You know, I think that technology has a part to play in this, but we are always going to have to test that technology against public acceptability. There will
1: always be detractors and we have to have open, transparent public debate about it. What are your views on the EU's organic agriculture policy? I mean, they've launched some ambitious targets. I think it's for 25% of land farmed organically. Do we need to redefine what we mean by organic if we want to both have production and protection of environments? I mean, just bearing in mind your comments just now, Uh, Is it possible for us to work towards redefining organic to make it more intensive and less impactful? Because it strikes me that in the current understanding of it, it could possibly make things worse. People should be presented with choice and, you know,
2: if they want to eat organic produce, they certainly should be able to do so. However, my view is that the whole organic idea is slightly counterproductive to the kind of developments that I think we need to make in agriculture and food production, because it harps back to old systems, which actually were no better than the modern systems in the context of their own day. Regenerative agriculture is a bit of that as well, but it's slightly different. it, It is bringing on new technologies. Because I think organic is about being slightly negative about new technologies. And there is no doubt that we are not going to be able to solve the food problem, the food production problem, unless we take on new technologies. So while I'm not critical of of organic, so long as it stays a relatively small part of the food production system, I think that's fine. If it becomes a major part of it, then we have significant problems and we will go back to this issue that we will simply export the problem that we have elsewhere in the world because people will continue to choose to eat the foods they want to eat. They will need to be imported from other parts of the world where we have much less control over them. And, you know, you just need to look at soy in South America or palm oil in Southeast
1: Asia to see the effects of them. It seems clear that, in your view, sustainable intensification is a a highly desirable goal and something we really need to be focusing on if we want to tackle the issues around climate change and nutrition.
2: Yes, but with a qualification. And it's a qualification that it's not sustainable intensification as many people understand it. It's not just bigger and bigger machines with more and more chemicals plowing up the land. It's a genuinely transformed agricultural system where we are very finely engineering the way in which plants are actually grown. Some of the process-engineered production systems that I have seen measure very precisely how much nutrient each plant gets. Plants are looked after in the same way as we look after animals in terms of their health and welfare, uh, because actually if they're healthy, then they actually are highly productive. So that's the kind of approach that we're talking about. We're not talking about just a big blockbuster approach with more chemicals, more fertilisers, et cetera, et cetera.
1: In fact, it's less of those rather than more. And final question, we've touched on this, but if you're a food company executive listening to this or you're in the food business, as many of our listeners are, what should you be looking out for as a direct result of COP26? I know it's hard to look into a crystal ball and and know exactly what's going to come out of this. Are we expecting a Paris type breakthrough or is it more like the other COPs where we see a continuation of, of a choppy process since Paris in 2015? It's hard to predict. I don't think we'll see a Paris type breakthrough. I think we'll see
2: quite a lot of difficulty around the accountability, as I said at the beginning. From a food executive point of view, you know, I think it will be a continuation of the drive towards net zero. And that will have implications, implications for how those businesses run themselves, but also have implications for their supply chains. And it may introduce something called extended user responsibility, which means that supermarkets that sell you something once you walk out of the supermarket with that thing, with whatever you've bought, the supermarket still has, has some legal responsibility for what happens to that and particularly to packaging. So the, the supermarkets may have a, some form of legal responsibility for taking that packaging back and reusing it in an appropriate way. So those are the kinds of things that I think will be on supermarket executives' minds. And of course, they will all add to costs and they'll all add to kind of stress within the system. But nevertheless, we have to find ways of trying to solve
1: those types of problems. Thanks very much, Ian. Well, let's hope we can do that at COP26 and the UK does a, a decent job of, of chairing the meeting and trying to control others and our own interests forward. So we look forward to a successful COP, we hope for one. And in the meantime, uh, Serene Boyd, Thank you so much for your time today. We could talk all day, but all good things must come to an end. This has been a fascinating discussion. So thank you very much for your insights. Look forward to seeing our outcomes for later in the year and um, look forward to some debate on this subject from listeners. So um, thank you all for listening. And just a reminder that Innovation Forum is holding our Future of Food conference in about three weeks' time, which is be a virtual event, you're welcome to join by looking on the Innovation Forum website. just remains for me to, to thank you very much, Ian, for, for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: As ever, look out at innovationforum.co.uk for all the usual audio interviews and insight. Over the coming weeks, there will be a number of podcasts with expert panellists from the recent Innovation Forum conferences, so do listen out for them. But that's all for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.